this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we are doing one of those uh, one of those uh, synergized deals, one of those cross uh, cross platform multi. The what? Uh, <laughs> we're doing CrossFit. We're doing CrossFit, Jay. We're gonna synergize. We're gonna we're gonna get in shape. We're gonna jazzercise and CrossFit. And the shape I've chosen is a pair to uh, mm. steal an old Robin Williams joke. No, we're we're doing a, an album, Jay. In which the band has reunited and put out a new record. And in this case, it's the band Suede, or if you're here in the United States, the London Suede. Suad? Yes. Suede is like, um, there's that store, if you go to like uh, the big malls, uh, Anthropology, but it Mm. looks like it's spelled Anthropology. Always drives me nuts, the spelling of that that, uh, store. Anyway, Suede have a new album out. It's called Night Thoughts. The reviews have been very good. Uh, in fact, um, the esteemed all-music critic, uh, Stephen Thomas, I think it's Erstwhile, said that Night Thoughts is the proper follow-up to their second album, Dog Man Star, which we have uh, just so happened, decided to review uh, that's weird yeah isn't that crazy how that worked out <laughs> no the the truth is that uh, if you if you've joined us at our patreon page and if you've become a subscriber uh, you get to vote on these sorts of things so we put it up for a vote what 90s suede album uh, should we review and we got feedback uh, Scott which is uh, Scott Russell Hallgum said uh, the one with the kissing people on the cover that's the mm-hmm. one that he said. Mm-hmm. And Steve Musinski said, I'm with Scott, though I'm completely unfamiliar with uh, with Suede. They've been on my radar for a long time now, and this will be the perfect opportunity to check out the album. Uh, but then we had people who said, uh, Scott Witt, for example, I say the second album. They were deemed the next big thing with their debut, so I always like to look at how the bands deal with that. Uh Local art rock DJ called them the next Smiths off their de- debut. Local alt rock, not art rock. And then a Gavin Reed. He said, uh, Dogman Star, I think the self-titled album is the bigger and more influential albums. Or, of, of Is one of the bigger, more influential albums of the time. So it's always interesting interesting to find out what they did next. Typically the le- with less time, more money, and higher expectations. So we had a 50-50 split. We flipped the coin. Boom. We we arrived on Dogman Star. Boom. Boom. That's actually what a coin sounds like when you flip it, but we'll just go with that uh, for these purposes. So, Jay, what is your history with this album and with Suede as a as an uh, an American with a dealing with a very uh, British band who did not make a huge impact in the states in, in the nineties? I dabbled little uh i think i got to them through the manix maybe just in terms of or supergrass i don't know there was some period at which i started to discover uh, a lot of bands from uk in the mid 90s and stumbled to suede um i think maybe coming up was the most recent release at the time 
And I also had Head Music. Is that the album after? Yeah. So Coming Up came out in 96 and Head Music came out in 99, which is where I think I got into them, which was Head Music. And then I worked my way backwards from there. Right. So those were the two I had. Um, uh, at some point, I explored some of these uh, slightly older records, but was really, I think, most interested in the band in that late 90s, early 2000s gotcha. time frame. Now, I think I had seen the videos for the first record, like Animal Nitrate and um, I think Metal Mickey were a couple of the singles that had videos that were played on like really late on 120 Minutes or, or Alternative Nation. And I just did not have a clue. I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on. Mm. Uh, I didn't have a frame of reference at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't until I think the single for Electricity came out and I can thank the Virgin Megastore that was in Columbus, I think they were in the listening booth at the Virgin Megastore for head music. And that, and I had heard the single probably on like some radio station. I don't know if it was the CD 101 at the time, which is now 102.5, or if it was, uh, that was when we were just getting into like internet radio. So you could tune into like the Virgin channel on BBC through like real audio player. <laughs> so I might've yeah. heard them on there. I forgot about real audio. Yeah, you could stream some uh, some like BBC channels through that. Yeah, uh, that was the that was yeah that was online audio, music. Mm-hmm. I mean that's that was it. Yep. And uh, so it was there, and then I went back to coming up and and the debut, and then Dogman Star. And I did get a new morning when it came out, but I, I do not care for that record. I'm just you know gonna spoil the <laughs> the two thousands for that record. But we should briefly talk about the history of Suede. History of the band. So, as we mentioned, they're from the UK, formed in London in 1989. Um, originally, were formed by uh, Brett Anderson, who's the lead singer, and Justine Frischman, who would later go on to form Elastica. They met in 1989 at the University College London and became a couple. Um, and then they were joined by Matt Osman. That was like the core of the band as a three-piece. But neither of them could play guitar. So they started looking for uh, guitar players. And they put up an advertisement. And that attracted the interest of a guy named Bernard Butler, who would be with the band for only the first two records. So the first album we've mentioned was a huge debut. It came out uh, 1993. We won like the Mercury Prize. You know, tons of awards, best of lists, all that sort of thing. So they had a you know a huge amount of expectations going in, and the t- the term Britpop was essentially formed around the debut Suede album. So in that time in which that album comes out, then you get bands like Blur and Pulp and and Oasis start popping up, and in the time that they release that album to the time they start working on the second album, they're basically like, we hate this term Britpop. <laughs> Uh, none of these bands sound like us. That's not what we're trying to do. They were essentially going in like the Smiths, David Bowie, you know, territory of uh, British rock, whereas uh, you know Oasis was, you know, aping the Beatles and Blur were going after uh, you know the Beatles and the Kinks and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So different different set of influences on on the bands. So they go into the studio to start working on the second record. This is important for what we're working on. And there was a lot of tension in the band. Apparently Bernard Butler had suffered a family tra- tragedy and he didn't want to tour, but they had to go on a U.S. tour. 
and he pretty much uh, left the tour and, and the band had to cancel a bunch of dates and um, he wasn't talking to Brent Anderson. He actually gave an interview in which he, t- like, while they're in the pre-production on the record, like, starting to write songs and whatnot, he gives an interview where he talks about how he can't stand Brent Anderson and he just mm. doesn't, doesn't like the guy and calls him insane. And Brent Anderson uh, had helped this uh, antagonism by buying a Victorian mansion and taking tons of psychedelic drugs and basically turning into the character from Velvet Goldmine, uh, the Jonathan Reese Davis character where he's just like holed up in a, you know, giant mansion with tons of drugs and chicks mm. and basically behaving like a crazy person. And so they were not getting along. And at some point during the record, uh, the uh, Bernard Butler didn't want to work with the producer Ed Buller and thought he was just awful. And he wanted him replaced. And the rest of the band said, no. And he said, well, if you don't replace him, I'm quitting. And the rest of the band went, okay, goodbye. And he thought of it more as an idle threat, but they actually, like, he left and they locked the door of the studio and were like, you're not coming back in. And then he's like, well, I want my guitar back. So they, like, put the guitar outside the studio and said, come and get it. You're done. He ended up finishing some guitar tracks, but he went to a different studio and worked with a different producer to finish the guitar tracks on some of the record. So but so the whole record isn't him. Some of it they brought in a studio uh, guitarist to play, and they had the demos that Bernard Butler played, and he replicated what Bernard Butler did from the demos. Wow! So there's a lot of a lot of animosity and anger about what we you know what was happening with the production of the record and and the drug use and uh, and a lot of pressure to follow up you know this huge debut, which of course they didn't it didn't sell as well when it came out, and even though they got a lot of rewards or a lot of awards, it didn't have the same commercial impact. So that, and Bernard Butler was seen as sort of the scapegoat for a lot of that because he had quit the band during the recording process. And the band would go on uh, with a new guitar player, Richard Oakes, and he's still with the band. They released, uh, as I mentioned, 1996 Coming Up, which is a much more commercial uh, album. had a lot of singles. The production is different. Head Music in 99, A New Morning in 2002. Then they went on hiatus until 2013 with a pretty solid record, Blood Sports. And then they just released Night Thoughts, which I've not heard yet, as I said, but I've heard it's very good. Well, it's weird because um, I guess one of the other ways I came to the band, I think, is there was quite a bit of buzz about Bernard Butler, I Mm -hmm. remember, at the time, too. Like He did two solo records in the 90s. Uh, even in terms of like you know guitar the guitar world like him being you know sort of a emerging or notable person yeah well he joined the band when he was 19 yeah i mean it's hadn't i hadn't realized he didn't you know didn't do that much recording with them yeah i you know he was placed in the same category as like he was the next johnny marr he was the Mm -hmm. next um john squire from the roses, uh, you know, what, what, whatever mm-hmm. guitar god, British guitar god, you know, you had in mind. He was the he was the young gun, the next guy, mm-hmm. uh, being only nineteen when he, you know, joined the band in in ninety or ninety one, whatever that was. So let's talk about uh, Dogman Star, which uh, Bernard or Brett Anderson indicated that the title is. It's the it's the stages of the band. They started out as a as a dog, 
They were a crappy band. They grew up to be a man, and then this album was supposed to make them a star. That was his mm. explanation of okay. the uh, of the album title. Jay, why don't you start and tell me one thing that you liked about this record? Well, they're a band that's, you know, at their core, pretty over the top. <laughs> I think everybody can can agree to that. At times, they can be very the- theatrical. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in this record, it's got a lot of texture and a lot of extra production um, beyond just the you know the drums, guitar, vocal kind of format, mm-hmm. and they pull it off pretty well. Um, I think a lot of other artists in these clothes would not look nearly as good. Uh, there's some about the combination of how I don't know bombastic and big their personality is or Brett Anderson's personality is that it works with the at times over the top strings and accompaniment and extra instrumentation and just overall you know sort of embellishing of the of the, of the music mm-hmm. um, I think it also helps a lot in that the core sound of the band especially the guitar tones are so thin and, and and almost brittle at times it that it's a very strange electric guitar tone on this record um it actually it, i think uh i remember coming up being similar in, in the same way that the extra piano and cello and all the other stuff really helps fill out some of these songs so when they go to a course and they bring in those those additional pieces, it really helps beef it up. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that just the core band on its own, it would be uh, pretty thin sounding. And I think, you know, they also find some pretty interesting ways to mix it all together. You know, just from an engineering production standpoint, you know, the, the overdubs on this record are not subtle, the, the, almost to the point of like, you know, a guitar will come in on a chorus and it's just like blaring. Mm-hmm. Like out of nowhere, it's just like cranked or like a piano will come in and it's just like in the red um, and then it'll, it'll drop out and it'll, you know, it's, 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 these dramatic shifts between verses and chorus based on like pulling it in and out all of these instruments. Right. Um, it actually is, it's a kind of thing where it could be a complete disaster trying to do that in a mess, but like they walk that line of it, of pulling it off and actually making it pretty compelling and and how they they're kind of just obvious and in your face about it that this is a, a pretty heavily produced record. Yeah, I think the brittleness. It sounds like almost on every song, like you know, the distortion is is turned down mm-hmm. uh, on the guitar, and it's like wobbly. Like it's almost like there's a tiny bit of tremolo on like every single guitar, where it's just it just sounds like it's just this like little rickety guitar part. <laughs> Unless yeah. you know, unless they kick it in on certain songs, the thing that I I like about this album is that it is an album. I mean, it has a very uh, ebb and flow feel to it. It has that really cool intro of introducing the band, which is like this chanting mantra thing mm-hmm. that's going on, and then um, the single, which apparently did not do well, but uh, we are the pigs. It just has this uh, very sleazy kind of dark. Mm-hmm. turn to it and then it has these like uh 
I think the thing I like about it is it's like it knows that it's sleazy, so then it throws in these horns that sound like they're from the Peter Gunn theme or something. Mm. And uh, it just sounds it sounds like the Stones is filtered through Bowie or something, or the Velvet Underground. Like it just mm-hmm. has this like creepy, weird vibe to it that I really enjoy, and it just permeates the whole record. Heavy, that, e- heavy echo yeah echo and, and and that's it's on the first record too there's a lot of echo and it's very distant sounding you know you, know, you get that tin can production that uh, has a an effect, a lot of early 90s british albums have that same sort of mm-hmm. sound to them but it works in that uh, this record i don't think it's meant as a as a concept record where it's the songs all have to connect in one way or another i think there are some themes in terms of l- lyrical content. Um, I, when in reading the lyrics of like the two of us and, and still life, there seemed to be some, it's, it seemed to be about like domestic life and home life and between like a man and a woman. And obviously the two of us pretty obvious in, in terms of the title. And then you get like uh, the asphalt world, which is the longest song is, which in reading about it, that song was originally like 25 minutes long. And they had to like fight to cut it down because Bernard Butler wrote it. He wrote all the music. Bernard Butler okay. composed everything. Wow. And then Brett Anderson comes in and, and sings vocals on top of everything. Mm-hmm. So he had imagined it imagined it as this twenty five minute long prog rock song that had like a eight minute long guitar solo and they cut it down from that to like eighteen minutes and then from there to, to nine minutes which is what ended up on the record. If you get the deluxe version that was re-released in 2011, it has a 11-minute version of it. And then there's like another version that's like even longer than that. There's also a 16-minute long version by Brian Eno of the, the opening uh, introducing the band. If you if you have the need for that. Uh, that's actually on iTunes. So you can can indulge in the full yeah in the full uh, deluxe version but i th- i think that's i i didn't find myself skipping anything on this record just because it felt like everything kind of flowed into one another even though they don't necessarily like crisscross the tracks turn to fade fade ins and fade outs but they have a there's a uniformity and a and a connection that all the songs seem to have to each other uh, they did a good job sequencing it because there's a lot of slow songs on the record and, and slow to mid-tempo, so it could have gotten boring. But I, I found myself saying engage and listening to the record once, and then I'd be like right back into it again. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it. I felt like a lot of that had to do with the the production and that it doesn't let it doesn't lull you at any point. Even though, like you said, it, 
some of the songs can get, you know, there's quite a few slow ones on here. It's either his personality and delivery, it keeps you engaged, or the fact that they throw some curveballs with the production and just enough weirdness that it doesn't get boring. I mean, there's some lulls a little bit through, like, I would say, after the two of us, I felt like black and black or blue in the asphalt world, things start to take, start going down a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then I felt like still life picks back up and ends dramatically. So, yeah, I mean, I would agree that they do a pretty good job of keeping you engaged through all of this. How did uh, how did the vocal come across to you now, in 2016, as compared when you heard it in the mid mid to late 90s? Well, you know, he's got a a, a wholly unique voice for mm-hmm. the the era. I like him a little bit better on stuff on coming up in head music because it's a little poppier, mm-hmm. and I think he works well. Uh, enthous- when he's enthusiastic and being a little, uh, being pushed by the music a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily, I, I don't dislike him on the album, but uh, when he's sort of lulled into these longer five or plus minute long slower songs, you know, I, I end up pay- having to pay attention to the lyrics because there's not as much going on melodically, I think, because he kind of doesn't have. He doesn't have like, this magnificent range, you know, in terms of his vocal. He's either singing sort of high, his, with a histrionic sort of bent, or he's doing sort of a darker low vocal. Yeah. So, it, I mean, I don't think it's aged poorly. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, it's so, it's always so been so out there, and compared mm-hmm. to most pop vocalists. Yeah. So, yeah. Know? Yeah, I agree. I think he's probably the reason, at least in America, that you know they had trouble maybe breaking through. I, I just think that his vocal is a—it's either a choir taste or <laughs> it's polarizing. I think for some people, and there's some points on all the records where it, it works better than others. I felt like on this one, maybe maybe what you're saying um, in terms of. Musically, I think this is quite a bit better than the records that came after it. You know, I think musically this is much more adventurous and creative than, say, coming up or head music, that it does push him vocally. It also uh, complements him vocally. Like, there's other things going on interesting that you don't always pay attention to the vocal. Mm-hmm. Whereas on some of the stuff that's a little more pop-oriented, you know, it ends up being really so much about him where, you know, there's some great guitar performances on here. You know, there's some parts that it's funny that you said that, you know, that they were basically replicated from a demo because there's some parts on here. Where you're like, I don't even know how you would play that twice. You know, it's like, right. Very, uh, at times almost like Rolling Stones ish, like two guitar kind of back and forth bluesy kind of feel, but not, uh, cliched at all and i think that that and the extra production of all the strings and horns and it it's enough that uh if you dwell on his voice for a little bit all of a sudden you'll get pulled off into some you know your your mind will and your ears will get pulled off onto something else either guitar or 
production oriented and then you'll come back to him and it, it kind of gives you a break so he doesn't kind of wear out his welcome. I think in terms of all their albums, I'd probably put this in coming up at the top, but they represent two completely different sides of the band. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the band as uh, long form, you know, indulgent, uh, difficult, but still melodic, um, willing to take risks and succeeding. And then coming up is basically them condensing all of his sort of, you know, melodic ideas, but into three minute and four minute long radio friendly singles, sing, singles with much cleaner production and really focusing on, you know, melody that hooks people. Uh, whereas, you know, there's some beautiful melodies on this record, but, you know, and on either end of it, you have the debut, which is a really great record, but not in the same way that Dogman Star is in terms of its experimentalism and, and willingness to go overboard. Mm. Um, and then Head Music, which not only does it have some great singles, it has some terrible like filler-type stuff on that record that, you know, yeah. and they, they really go almost too far in, in some of the uh, single territory where it becomes like a parody of it. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, we should mention the Sci-Fi Lullabies, which is the, the B-Sides double album, and has a lot of stuff that was written during this era. It's actually really good. It's probably better than Head Music if you're going to rank albums. Like it, It's really solid all the way through for being a double record of B-Sides. Mm. So, yeah, I don't, you know, I, in terms of where I came in with the band, I probably came in with the weakest record of the whole decade. It's so... Yeah, lucky yeah, to go backwards sure. on that. Yeah, I mean, heavy music is—it's kind of like they're trying to be T Rexy, you know, and and that's kind of the way I yeah. thought of them. And now I've, I'm going back and listening to this record, I'm realizing that there was a whole other angle of the band that I wasn't really hearing. Right. Which I think, you know, 20 years later works a lot better. What's funny is that in some of the negative reviews that I read about this record that came out like Robert Christo critic for uh, New York times. He uh, gave it a, a thumbs down. I think he's New York times. I don't know. I don't read it. A lot of the critic stuff, but um, one of the re- negative criticisms was that the that was overblown. Like this, this record is, has too much going on. It's overblown. And I'm like, you haven't even gotten to be here now. Talking <laughs> about an overblown record. Like this is, this is yeah. thin compared to that. Just right. wait. But that's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's my opinion that that I started with was that uh, they're able to pull that off, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I don't think Oasis is because really at the end of the day, Oasis is a very simple band. Right. Like they work best when it's, it's just presented in a stripped down 
simple way. The songs are strong enough that they can work like that and they're compelling that way. So when you add in the extra stuff, it just becomes noise. Whereas this band, they're already kind of over the top, even if, you know, even if there was just four of them. So when you add in the extra pieces, it it's like with David Bowie. I mean, like, I don't know. He has so much personality that he could kind of go in any direction. Right. He totally fine. Like he can make it work because he can fill up that space and, and, and make that stuff kind of still his also just because like his voice was so unique. And I think Brian Anderson's voice is so unique that no matter what you put it around it, put around it, it becomes his, you know, it becomes suede. Whereas I, I don't think Oasis is that kind of band. So. No. I, I said New York times for Robert Christo. I, I meant village voice. I apologize for to all the rock crits out there who uh, I insulted with my lack of Did knowledge. You, so, I, I mean, I remember when I first uh, heard of this band, there was always comparisons to Bowie. Mm-hmm. Going back and listening to this, did you you still hear those? Or is that like the androgynous kind of flamboyant persona, but not really the music? I don't hear it as much in the music as I do in the persona that he's putting forth. Um, in the same way that, you know, their comparison to the Smiths, and I don't hear the Smiths per se. You know, I hear, if anything, I hear like the weirder influences of like the Velvet Underground or, you know, sometimes it reminds me of like Peter Gabriel Genesis uh, in, in, in bits and pieces, you know, the early weirder yeah. stuff. You know, those those easy comparisons of Bowie and and um, the Smiths, I think, are just based on you know the location, if anything, yeah. of the, just being British. Whereas, in terms of the drug influence of say, you know, what Anderson was doing in comparison to like Velvet Underground, that to me seems like a more appropriate musical comparison than you know I, i'm sure there are you know some comparisons to some bowie stuff but not as much in the music as in the personality yeah i yeah i heard some i heard less than i thought i would but i definitely heard some some moments like in heroin there's a um there's a bridge where he, he puts a actually puts an effect on his vocal it's very bowie-esque sounding melodically There's one other, there's a uh, pre-chorus in New Generation that had a, a Bowie feel to it, but it, it was very minimal. I was expecting to hear a lot more mm-hmm. going back and, and revisiting this. And actually another guy, especially for the slower stuff, um, is Scott Walker. I don't know if you've listened to much Scott Walker, Jay. Um, I actually saw, there's a documentary on him that's pretty interesting. You can catch it on like Palladia. It might be on that. What's that website? Or streaming service where you can watch 
concerts and documentary. Quello. Yeah, it might be on Quello. I have um, Quello. He's a pretty interesting character in that he's got this deep, booming voice, and he was doing like kind of poppy stuff in the '60s as with the Walker Brothers, and then just went completely in the other direction and started making these like avant-garde records and like in part of the documentary he's recording a song and the for the percussion he's punching a slab of meat (laughs) he's got like a side of beef and he's just punching it and that's how they're getting the percussion sound okay but if you how did how did you find this documentary uh because i was interested in scott walker because i had heard about him and Mm. it was it just happened to be it might have been on netflix or something at the time or some never heard of him yeah because he just had such a weird career of yeah. of being this guy who I can't imagine that he sells many records, but yet he had this big pop career to in the, at least in the UK. But he's like he's an American, but he had his big his career has been in the UK yeah. primarily. He's he's of, a guy who's got some influence on on some of the slower songs on this record. I think hmm. kind of sounds like an Alex Chilton story a little bit, right? Like starts off with a big pop song. Oh yeah, because he was in the box tops, and then gets like into spends like. 10 or 15 years doing right. strange avant-garde punk. Well, he was even in a, before Big Star, he was in the box tops, which had, right. Right. That's what know, I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. He, I mean, it is a very similar, you know, he, he basically, they're both guys who do like sort of deconstructed their careers mm-hmm. as they went along and became more and more artistic and, and more difficult and more um, challenging with their output. Yeah. So, and we should mention that <laughs> even though Bernard Butler and, and Brett Anderson at, the time of this album being released hated each other. They ended up getting back together, uh, not in this band. They actually formed a duo called the tears in like the mid two thousands. And they put out an album together. So they did reconcile the, the uh, issues that they had. Okay. Why yeah. wouldn't they, <laughs> why wouldn't they do that? As I, I think because Br- I think Butler has pretty much given up being in, I think that was like a last thing he wanted to do. And he's pretty much just a producer now. Hmm. We should talk about our overall record. Uh, you know, actually, I want to talk about just one thing, which is sort of the the legacy that this band has left. I feel like without this band, you don't get bands like I don't think you have a placebo. Yeah, placebo was a huge, hugely influenced by this band, and mm-hmm. and Bowie and you know T Rex and and artists that came before them. Um, but I think that this definitely was a, a band that became. Or, or existed because of the fact that Suede were out there. I, I can't think of a lot of other bands that specifically were influenced well, by Well, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say because they were so marginal in the U.S. For I mean, at least I, it's hard for us to say. Um, there might be lots of U.K. bands that are also marginally known, known here that were in, you know, right. them. Placebo makes a ton of sense. You can totally hear the... right. The vocal similarities and just overall, like, right influence there. I mean, for all I know, Muse might be influenced by Suede. Sure, yeah. So, there you go. Uh, so let's talk about our overall uh, ratings on this album. Jay, were the album better EP or decent single? Where does it lie for you? Well, I realize it's not for everybody, uh, it's, but I liked it quite a bit. Uh, I would say of the 12 tracks, you know, I've got seven to eight here that I enjoyed. <clears throat> Some of them, the verses are 
pedestrian, but they have great choruses. You know, mm-hmm. they almost sound like two different songs, but they're so good that it's worth it. Or there's some that are like the two of us, which is it's a little long, but it's just such a well done ballad and compa- I don't know, it's just compelling. Like I, I just couldn't turn that song off. You know, it just it's um so intimate and the sound of it, and uh, so I. I really I liked it quite a bit. I think there's a, a lot of range here. But I think it, like I said earlier, it just keeps you. It kept me engaged through the whole thing. I didn't find myself bored or disinterested at any point. So that's an album for you, Sam. Yep, we're in agreement. Unfortunately, we uh, have not broken from agreement <laughs> in quite a while. Uh, but yeah, this is a worthy album. Um, one of the highlights, I would say, of the of the '90s in terms of working as an overall album piece and the crazy thing is like if you like i said if you go to that sci-fi lullabies compilation and you find the b-sides for this album a lot of them are as good as the record uh, killing hmm. of a flash boy is one of the songs it's really good uh, i'm trying to remember some of the other ones but there there are a lot of songs that came out of this period and they actually put out a single around this time called stay together which could have been on the record uh, but was just a standalone single, and that's really good as well. And that's on that sci-fi lullabies uh, compilation. Uh, I'm imagining those are the other... They're also on the deluxe version, right? Yeah, and then the deluxe version has like the whole, like, all the looks B-sides like, and looks remixes. Like de- and demos on here, too. Yeah, demos and yeah. the 16-minute long Eno version of introducing the band for for those who need that. That's it. I want to remind everybody, if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. And you can comment on this episode at our Facebook page, on Twitter, at digmeoutpodcast.com, or you can join us, as we mentioned at the top of the show, you can comment comment on episodes before uh, we record them, and we'll include your comments in the show by joining us at Patreon, becoming a Patreon subscriber that's it. Two enthusiastic, worthy albums from Jay and myself for Suede's Dogman Star. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash digmeout or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.